welcome to this episode of Reading Between the Wines. I am your host, Winona Glass, here with my esteemed colleague, the Psalm of the South, Keegan Moore. Hello. And we are going to discuss today The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna. And then we are going to drink some phenomenal wines, which we'll get to in just a minute. So, The Great Alone. Have you ever been to Alaska? I have not. I, uh, Colorado's pretty, pretty cold enough for me being from the South. Uh, I would love to visit, see the Northern Lights, uh, maybe go to a national park up there too, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to, I don't want to live there. It made me cold just reading this book. What about you? Yes, I have not yet had the pleasure of going to Alaska. I hope to do that in 2021 if our travel restrictions open up and we're able to do that. Um, But I agree. I don't know that it's the isolation as much as it is the darkness that would prevent me from living in, uh, in Alaska, because I feel like only having at certain times of the year, like 45 minutes of daylight would probably drive me insane. Definitely have some mental struggles for sure. Yes. And you, you work all summer for... I thrive in sunlight. Like I really feel like I need to be out in the sun when the sun is out and to only have that for 45 minutes would just be heartbreaking. Exactly. I don't think I could live in London or even Seattle. Yes. I need my sunshine. I hear you. And so you were saying something I interrupted you about. You work all summer. Well, you work all summer. It's the beauty, most beautiful time of the year. Mm -hmm. And you got to be like hardened and like buckle down for the winter. Mm hmm. I don't think I'm that hard. And I feel like everyone, when they first got there, was like, you're not prepared. Like, you're going to die. And that's a lot of pressure when you first move to a place you've never been before to know that, like, in three months, you could be dead. They were nice about it, but they were like, yeah, "Yeah, you're not ready for this. Correct. Yes. So let's get into the book. Um, So we're going to start at the beginning. And so we meet Cora and Ernt when they are in California. And Ernt finds out that he has come back from the military, and one of the guys that he served with um, has left him some property, Bo. uh, They served in the military together, and Bo has left him a plot of land in Alaska. Bo did not make it through the war, Um, so he is his dad, Mad Earl, whom becomes an integral part in their lives, has uh, contacted him and said, my son left you this land, do with it what you want, like, whatever, we're good. And we appreciate everything that you did. And so Ernt really kind of uh, in what we would consider now like a true PTSD situation from the war is decided that we need a fresh start. We're going to move the family up to Alaska from California because that makes rational sense to everybody. But it's free land. It is free land. Of course. But I would think that it comes with some sort of stipulation like you have to live through the winter yeah you have to make it there like yeah getting there for them was a struggle financially yeah i mean cora had to like suck it up and go to her parents just to get money uh to go into alaska to acquire and to live off this land um and so cora kind of has this volatile relationship with her parents because they saw more for her in her life and she married Ernt because they loved each other and they have in multiple occasions in the book kind of described their love as like heroin for each other like they can't live with each other and they really can't live without each other they kind of have this like quite the roller coaster of a relationship (laughs) oh my goodness it's a very like addictive relationship almost like I feel like they both do things to each other that just propagate this kind of downward spiral in ickness um 
And so talking about Cora and Ernst, their relationship was complex and very volatile. And it doesn't seem like moving to Alaska would be a good idea for that, especially given that the nights were so hard for Ernst. Already. Right. And then you add in a whole season of dark. Yes. And so for someone who struggles at night with their demons, um, it seems as though this would be a very bad decision. But Ernst is so passionate about it that Cora and Letty, their daughter, seemed like they don't have a choice but to move forward and, and kind of go along for the ride. Dragged along up there. Yes. So they make it to Alaska after uh, after Cora has to humble herself and go and ask her parents for money to get them to Alaska or f- at least to have a stash that Ernt doesn't know about that will get them through the winter. Um they make it up there. They meet Matt Earl and his family, which, what was your first impression of Matt Earl? You know, a little reminiscent of the South, perhaps, <laughs> but nevertheless, like a close family. Very close family. Close-knit. Slightly going scary. On. Little intimidating. Yes. Wouldn't want to roll up on that household for sure. Right. Like, I was a little afraid they were going to get shot the first, like, day one. hundred pages in. Right. I was like, well, there's a lot more book here, so I'm not sure where we go from here, but it sounds like they're going to get killed <laughs> the moment they arrive in Alaska. <laughs> but it turns, turns, turns for the best for everybody, so... It does. It does. And so I, I feel like Cora and Ernst... The the Cora does some things to kind of provoke Ernt because she wants his attention, but this his attention turns negative or his attention turns um, abusive, quite honestly. And but it's almost like Cora needs that. She needs that validation from him, and I don't understand why. I was just gonna say I personally don't understand at all why you'd want to flirt with another man, knowing your husband's watching and gonna beat the crap out of you later, and you're gonna pay for it later yes. on. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like you're tempting fate there. And it's a, it's a very odd thing to me because I feel like it's sometimes she was very intentional about tempting that fate and other times she was a victim of that fate. You can never tell which way he was going to go one way or the other. Yeah, but. yeah. It was a very, um, he, he was kind of like a, a bomb. You know, you never know what was going to trigger him or how he was going to go off. And, and they were tiptoeing around. All the time. All the time at the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed like it was a very contentious situation to be in. And then to be in like one room, that was the part I couldn't think about was them being in essentially one room, the like three a of cabin. them. Mm-hmm. And that uh, poor Lenny, the daughter, could hear everything that was happening. She kind of knew when things were good and when things were bad. Yeah, it turns out like a curtain doesn't really uh, do much for sound. So <laughs> one way or the other. Um, so it was it, it just was a very interesting relationship because I don't know about you, but I've never been in a relationship like that that I couldn't walk away from, that I knew was bad for my being, that was bad for my daughter to witness. Um, but I couldn't walk away from it for, for whatever reason. Yes. Personally, never been physically abused. Um, you know, I've read, I understand it's tough to leave. Sure. Sure. There's a lot of issues you have to consider, Mm -hmm. but you throw in the daughter factor, you know, she was putting Lenny Mm -hmm. in the same boat as her. And they did try to leave like the one night when the snowstorm was happening and they did try to leave because they knew like this was it. And they wrecked the van and ended up in the snowbank. And then they had to go and find Tom. Rolling back eventually. But Tom, I mean, Tom in this, he's kind of that 
steady hero, you know, hero in the book. Um, he was the person that Ernt loved to hate. And, right. and I really don't understand why. It was almost like Ernt was half jealous of the fact that Tom had made something of himself, but he also kind of used that against him. Like it was that he had done something horrible because he had made something of himself. Right. I, I think it was jealousy of the money and success, mm-hmm. but also he was there first, right? Mm-hmm. His family was like an original homesteader. Yes. Creating yeah. that city or town or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. the little area. And it was interesting to me how quickly Ernt like claimed Alaska as his own, how he claimed this little area as his own, like became like felt like he was native there, even though he was very much an outsider and was very ill prepared for their first winter there, as everyone that they encountered kept Told telling them. them <laughs> Congratulations, you're here, you're gonna die. And so that it was it was endearing to me how the community came around them to help them succeed. But then I also got frustrated because it felt like every time they would get a little bit of success or stability. It really wasn't even success, but I think it was stability or just like that they would survive the winter. Ernt would do something to jeopardize that. To mess it all up. Yes. Like when he went to Mad Earl's and got drunk or went to the bar and got drunk and the bear came and ate all of the chickens and was like trying, you know, was coming after the family and he wasn't there. And Tom, again, is the one that you know, saw them and saw how like disheveled and crazed and freaked out the both Cora and Lenny were when they came into town. And, you know, Ernt was at the bar hanging out with his buds. And then would get mad at Cora when they were eating the same minimal things every day because mm-hmm. they weren't prepared. Correct. Because she hadn't gotten creative enough. I mean, there's only so many ways you can make potatoes, right? Until you run out of potatoes. Yeah. And then you're just having like broth. And so I just felt like there was a kind of a continual contentious relationship of this spiral downwards that like they would try to get success. They would try to achieve, um, stability in Alaska. And then something would happen usually because of Ernt that would cause that not to happen and all be wiped away and it would all be wiped away and it would all be chorus fault even though wasn't necessarily all Cora's fault. Um, so knowing that and, and knowing, you know, Lenny tried to make herself at home. Lenny tried to become part of Alaska. She tried to embrace it. Um, and so part of that was going to school. And so she goes to the school that's literally like Little House on the Prairie. One school for everybody, like pre-K through high school. Congratulations, this is where you oh, go to school. Oh, the teacher called out, uh, well, you're the oldest in here right now, so you're teaching today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm probably not going to make it to school part of the time because I live, you know, an hour away and we get snowed in. So you're going to be the teacher if I'm not here. Yay, you. Um, it seems a little uh, blind leading the blind almost because it's not like Lenny knew a whole lot going into this, but at least she did have some lower 48, as they called it, education. Yeah, and then she got to learn about Alaskan history. And, uh, <laughs> yes, very important. But she was fortunate enough to be in class yes. with, you know, a boy or two mm-hmm. her age. Mm-hmm. Axel, whom she knew uh, through Mad Earl's clan there in Alaska. But then she met Matthew, and it was fun to watch their uh, relationship evolve because first she was like, he's the snaggle tooth, like crazed hair kid that is, you know, I'm just going to be friend because he's my age and I'm lonely, but it 
blossomed into so much more over the course of this book, which was fantastic to watch and fantastic to be a part of. What is it, do you think, about these first loves? We've done a couple of books now where they've talked about this kind of first love, how it evolves. And what do you think it is about those relationships that really make them so memorable to you? You know, for most people, let me back up. Virginity is something that most people remember for better or worse. True. Very good point. Yes. And on a side note to not first love necessarily, I kind of think this was like the first guy that she could like trust in her life. True. She never had a grandfather in her life. Mm-hmm. And she was always on her mom's side. Mm-hmm. She never had and like she, a strong male role model that wasn't abusive. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So she kind of latched on. It was kind of convenient. They were the same age. Yep. Lived in the same town, went to the same school. I mean, he was teaching her things and showing her things that she would have never been able to see before. Yes. And that's all kind of magical, you know? Showing her all the things about Alaska that make it so special. And I can only imagine losing my virginity like on a blanket in the outdoors in Alaska. <laughs> but then they fell asleep, which <sighs> posed a bit of a problem. I was having a panic attack <laughs> for them. Because <laughs> as soon as you get like lost in all the uh-huh, love and uh-huh. lust. Yes, yes. It's tiring and, mentally and physically. And I think we all saw that they were going to fall asleep. Like the foreshadowing was there. She definitely did a great job. Uh-huh. And her mom covered that. for her pretty amazingly because it would have uh, the boots thing. Like I didn't even think about the boots by the front door. But, you know, first of all, her dad, who normally is oblivious, all of a sudden is like, why are you wearing a dress? Why do you look nice? Why is your dress crumpled up in the living room, daughter? Yes. I don't know if I could have lied my way out of that one personally. It was uh, a little um, touch and go there. Like she definitely walked a fine line to try to get him out of the, of the cabin. Cause it's not like a neighborhood where he can like sneak out the back door. There's one door, one entrance, very small. He's got to get to his boat, which is a good like 150 yards away without being seen. Like there's a whole lot of factors that say this isn't going to work out, but somehow magically, he goes and gets in the boat and he gets away, which his dad, of course, her dad, Ernt, is like, oh, those tourists, those uh, sorority people. Luckily, he was hating on the tourists. Exactly. And exactly. didn't think twice about putting the things together. Yeah, because he could have easily put two and two together and figured out that it was not a tourist boat that was coming by his little culvert there. Uh, but so it just feels like Matthew and Lenny are kind of drawn to each other and... Um, so they, their relationship evolves and they go hiking together. And this is kind of a pivotal point is that she is running away from her dad because of everything that has happened with her dad and how things have progressed so horribly and how volatile that relationship has become, that it's become explosive and very unsafe for both her and her mom. So she retreats and she runs away and Matthew comes to find her and some tragic events happen next. Woo! Talk about some rabbit holes and falling down and things. Yes. So Kristen Hanna does a phenomenal job, again, describing Alaska, but also really making us invested in the two of them. And I feel like that really came about 
when they got trapped in the cave. And I, I don't know about you, but I was there with them. Like I was, I could not put this book down when I got to that part. Exactly. For better or worse, she did a wonderful job describing everything. Mm-hmm. But in particular, I am appreciative of the smells. Mm-hmm. Like I said, for better or worse, in yes. the cave, it yeah. definitely takes you down and dark and wet. And there was a lot of smells there. There was a, a lot of things going on there. And then you really don't know if Matthew's alive or dead and because he's non-responsive and because things have happened. And so she gets her wits about her, even though she's very injured. Talk and, about adrenaline. Oh, Whew. my gosh. Everything about that whole scene, that that whole experience was, I was I really wanted to to help her in that. And so we get past that. We'll just leave that for our readers to discover on their own. But they get past that. And that is when um, that Lenny discovers some things about herself and her mom discovers them as well. And when her dad discovers them, things go very south very quickly. It's very violent, very quick. Very physical. And even Cora's mom cannot keep her dad daughter yes cannot keep her cannot keep Ernt from hurting lenny and i i for better for worse mama bear came out in her and she finally became that strong female person that we needed her to be in the book and they take matters into their own hands and so they things progress and they are able to then um, work with the community. And, uh, you know, there's an important character that we haven't talked about yet, and that is Large Marge. Large Marge, saving the day. Large Marge saves the day in so many respects with this with this group, with Lenny and with Cora. All the way to the end. I mean, she becomes like Lenny's confidant. She becomes Cora's friend. She really becomes She's Cora's savior. <laughs> she was like the person, going back to a previous book that we did, she was kind of like the Mrs. Green in uh, the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Like she becomes that strong female person that's like not taking anything off anybody. And she's like, I, that's fine. Or you come at me, come, come at me with anything you've got. Like, it also helped that she was physically strong as well as she was a, being super mentally strong. She was an intimidating presence. It seems like, and Ernt would try to like intimidate her or talk down to her or, and she was like, whatever I, you don't, I'm not scared of you. Very comfortable in her own skin and very her much own- so place. And she had some experience, as we learn about in the book, with domestic violence in that, you know, she had wished that she could save her sister. So she understood where Cora was in the relationship and how she couldn't get out for better, for worse. Like she understood the mental state because she had been through that with her sister and how she couldn't save her sister. And I think a large part of why Large Marge was so prevalent in Cora and Lenny's life was because she couldn't save her sister, but she could save she them. She wanted to save someone else from domestic violence. She could see that path. She knew where it led. She knew what was going to happen, and she knew what the outcome would be if they didn't. Uh, if they didn't do something, if they didn't have that confidant, if they didn't have that resource that could be the safe haven, it didn't hurt that she was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer from out east, some sort of bigwig lawyer. So she could also help them in that regard. Um, And as the storyline progresses and they need large Marge's help and they call her and she comes in and again, she's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. These are the five things that you're going to do. And you're going to leave. You're never going to come back. You're going to leave all the doors open. So it looks like this place has been ransacked and eaten and bears and rats and all that fun stuff. Bears are good. 
Bears are good for covering evidence. Covering up evidence. Yes. If Alaska has one thing, it's a lot of bears that will eat anything. And so if you leave all that in your place, then okay. So no one expected them to survive the first winter. So the fact that this happened wasn't hugely surprising. It was definitely a plausible experience for them. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) two mistakes is all you get, right? That's right. Oh, that's a really good point. So they talk about that in the book that in in Alaska, you get two mistakes and that's it. Or you get one one and the second one is is death. What kills you? Mm Mm-hmm. And so they had kind of tempted that fate several times. And so it wasn't unplausible for them to have made their second mistake and it all ends badly. But what we realize is that Cora and Lenny escape and they make it back to California and they show up at her parents' doorstep and they take them in and they're gracious but condescending, (laughs) judgmental. I'm not really sure what the right adjective is there. I mean, when they say that Lenny's pregnant and she's like, oh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I was like, ow. Grandma, I'm right here. Jeez. Well, and also like you've not been, you've not experienced anything that they've experienced. So I just felt like it was really a knee jerk reaction. And we've all said things that we've regretted, but, and I do think that the mom regrets that the grandma regrets saying that later in the book. But they have that relationship and they have that she's able to now have those grandparents that she's never had. Lenny does um, when she gives birth to her baby, when she does all this. But it is interesting that even uh, the grandfather, who is also a lawyer, it tells them like, you guys are family that's staying with us. Like you are not our kids. Like you, we, we have to create these kind of false identities for you because otherwise They're going to tie you back to Alaska and what happened. And we can't save you from that. Murder is for life. I know. I know. And that's an unfortunate experience that they went through. And it was really disheartening for me to know that even Cora couldn't be confident and know that people would have her back if she told the truth. If she said, here's what was happening to me. Here's, here are all the medical records. Here are all of the hospital stays. Here's all the eyewitnesses that can account for everything that I've covered up for the past, you know, 20 years. But she didn't believe that, that the law would be on her side. And she didn't believe that she wouldn't still be, go to jail and be convicted and all of the things that happen to women uh, who come forward in domestic violence situations who have taken matters into their own hands. So, again, another book where we have a cancer situation. It's a killer. It keeps <laughs> coming back. It does. It does. It seems to be an, in a theme with us, um, both cancer situations and books told from the child's perspective, because we have another book here. We had the book of Polly, uh, and now we have uh, The Great Alone that are also talk about the book from the child's perspective. And so in that... Her mom dies. I hope I'm not spoiling this for anyone. It, it was a little frustrating for me after all of the physical abuse that she had been through all the years that she died of cancer. Right. You know, it, it's like she was so tough through everything that it was her body was like, we're done. Like, I, we can't, we can't protect you anymore. <laughs> You're finally in a safe space. Like, we're just, whatever happens, happens. And it was... She was such a fighter and to not fight as hard as she did to keep her family together against cancer. Uh, it was, it was sad. There's really no other way about it. I mean, didn't she light up 
in the hospital? She did. Yes. Like that's, that's kind of bold. Yeah. And I think that maybe that was her way of saying like, I'm doing this on my own terms. Like, or it's already too late. Yeah. Throw it in the towel. I don't know. Like I got, I got Lenny here. Mm -hmm. She's got her grandparents. She has her baby. She's safe. So she has MJ, her baby. And so her mom dies and Lenny has this unrest inside of her that she wants to go back to Alaska. Do you feel like there's a place, Lenny talks about how Alaska is where she belongs, that she has fallen in love with Alaska, that it's where she belongs. Do you think that there's like a place for everyone, that you're someplace that you belong? I think so. Neither of us are in the places where we were born. We are both, we've ventured out of the nest, so to speak. And so I'm, I'm just curious if, uh, if there is like a ideal place for everyone that they belong I don't know if it's necessarily ideal place, but I do feel like we're connected either mentally or physically or both to one area that speaks to us. Mm-hmm. And so maybe she could have ran away from Alaska and gone elsewhere, mm-hmm. but this is a kid, you know, like right. she's still very young. She is. She has a son and knows mm-hmm. where the father is mm-hmm. or should be or whatever. Maybe alive, maybe dead. We don't know. And whatever in between. Yes. Yes. So I feel, I understand why she felt compelled to go back. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, a guilty conscience is a thing. Yes. Yes. So she goes back again. Her grandparents give her the money. She goes back to Alaska and the most frustrating part of the book. Well, maybe the second most frustrating part of the book. She gets off the plane in Fairbanks and goes directly to the police station. Why? Why? You and I both agree on this, that we, coming from someone who's, her her grandfather was a lawyer, told her everything she needed to know, everything she needed to say, here's what you need to do. She's like, understand not doing it. I'm going to go and clear my conscience. And but writing it down on paper? So I really thought, I Ooh. really wanted to have the, I, I really wanted to be on the side of the police chief in this. Like I really wanted to know that he was going to be there for her. But in the back of my mind, I keep thinking like he, he has a job her. to do. Yeah. And here's a chance to close a very old case and to get some explanation around it and to have that closure. That is his job. Like that is what he does. He was not your friend before. It's not like he, she's confiding in a friend. He's still the chief of police. And so to go and to confess everything to him, I just, the more she talked, I was like, oh, why my are goodness. we going here? And At I, least go say hi to Marge. You know, something. something. And then check he, in on the family. And the, he, he even manipulated her when he said, you know, well, only guilty people need a lawyer. Are you Not sure you true. need a lawyer? I was like, girlfriend, oh my gosh, all these sirens are going off. I'm like, stop talking, just stop talking. Just why did you walk in the police station? If she'd have gone back and saw Marge, if she'd have gone back and saw Tom, if she'd have gone back and saw all of the people who really loved her and cared for her, that never would have happened. So I was incredibly frustrated at this point. Yeah, I mean, I was like, think of MJ. Yes, yes. And that was that was the part. It says she thinks she's doing the right thing so that MJ can have a life when actually she's putting that in jeopardy by... She's doing the exact opposite. Yeah, because she could be in jail, you know, for this. And, oh, I was so frustrated with her at that point. Like, just that... 
that young kind of idealism that everything's going to work out in your favor, that because I'm telling the truth, nothing bad can happen It'll to all me. work out. Yes, yes. Wrong. <laughs> so she ends up in jail, and MJ's there with her. Bless his little heart. He's thinking this is the time of his life, right? So she calls the only person that she knows she can, and she calls Tom. And Tom comes and gets MJ. And now again, Tom doesn't know that MJ is his grandson at this point. Tom just shows up because Tom's that guy, right? Like Tom, again, is the person who's going to, he cares about you, regardless of if he's known you five minutes or 15 years. Yeah. Also strong sense of community. Like Correct. Yes. He was taking care of her. And they thought she was dead. I mean, let's not go back to that. They all thought she was dead. And so the fact that she's alive, she's in jail, she's in Fairbanks. I'm sure Tom has like 75 questions, but he shows up. He shows up and he's, she's like, can you take MJ because I don't know what's going to happen here. And he does. Of course. And then everything that Ernt hated about Tom saves Lenny and MJ. Being connected. Turns out. Being That's connected. Large Marge shows up. Oh my gosh. Her in the courtroom. Uh, again, Kristen Hanna does an amazing job of describing Large Marge, like barging in there and becoming the lawyer that we all knew she could be. And just saying like, this is, this this is, is ridiculous. Bogus. This is bogus. You know, here? it's bogus. Why are we here? This is hearsay. You're just taking this out on this poor girl and you should be ashamed of yourself yeah. as the chief of police. I'm going to guilt you. I Mr. mean, Policeman. she put him in his place for this whole situation. And, you know, and so then again, like I said, everything that Ernst hated about Tom, that he always bragged that he played golf with the governor, which I felt like Mad Earl and Ernst bragged about that more than Tom did. He actually did. did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I felt like Mad Earl and, and Ernst really were the ones who kind of propagated that myth or reality or whatever it was, but they used it against Tom more than Tom used it in his favor. Exactly. And in the end, it turned out. And in the end, Tom was the one who saves the day, makes the phone call, and gets all the charges against her dropped and thrown out. And so then we get back to the property where where Tom takes and Tom and Large Marge take Lenny and she gets to see what has become of Matthew. And this is when we really see that kind of unrequited love. And I'm going to be full disclosure here, bald like a baby whenever I read this whole section, because whenever you find out that, you know, Lenny, that Matthew's still alive and that he has some sort of mental capacity and that he's living on his own and functioning on his own and trying really hard to do that painting his emotions. Yes. I mean, just he had become everything that he should have been. And it was very endearing to me that, you know, Lenny was like, I'm, I'm here. I was always here. Like I never, I never left you. And by the way, and again, Matthew's thinking like, why did you come here to tell me that you had a baby with somebody else? Why are you coming here to tell me that you're with somebody else? Matthew, it takes him a long time to get to the to point process all <laughs> that it's his baby and that it's her that she's come back for him and that she wants to be there with him. And that, you know, again, at any point in this whole thing, Lenny could have walked away and started a new life, but it was that draw and that connection and that first love that she continued to wonder what happened to him and yearn for him. And now she's back and they're in the same they're, they're together. Well, and also, like we were talking about before, like a sense of place, right? Yes. Like she probably could have met a guy in Seattle, right? Yes, but she absolutely. was like, 
oh my gosh, there's like cars here and people honk and, you know, (laughs) and there's a market with every kind of food you can imagine. And we're used to killing it or growing it or. (laughs) Right. And so she wanted to go back Mm -hmm. where it was more quiet. Mm -hmm. And yeah, her first love. Yes. Also her baby daddy, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I loved how they went on to have more children. I love that they went on to have a very fruitful relationship. I love that she became integrated into the community again, just like, um, just like she wanted, like, just like she yearned for when she wanted to go back to Alaska. I felt like that was a really great ending to a tragic story, you know, about love and loss and all the crazy things that we do when we're young and think that we're invincible. Well, and feeling guilty for mm-hmm. being responsible mm-hmm. for Matthew being injured. Mm-hmm. It's tragic. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of, that's a lot of weight to bear as well. And so to get back into kind of absolve yourself or your conscience of all of that by taking responsibility, but being there and showing up and helping and, and still, you know, Tom trying to make the world a better place, make Alaska an even more marketable place that, that people can go and come and spend time in. I mean, it's tough to deal with tourism mm-hmm. in your little town that you don't want to share with anybody, <laughs> but ultimately it's a revenue stream and mm-hmm. it usually leads to better things. So even speaking, if it's a fancy arc. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of better things, um, I had heard that when you have freezing temps for grapes, that it makes grapes a whole lot sweeter. And that's how this whole ice wine phenomena came to be. And so what do you know about ice wine or what can you tell us about ice wine? Because there's obviously a lot of ice and cold in Alaska. So ice wine, literally there is ice on the grapes when you pick them. Mm. So they're picking them late at night. You obviously have to live somewhere that your grapes can get ripe. But then when winter comes, it's freezing. Mm-hmm. And you can um, cheat, if you will, <laughs> and pick ripe grapes and throw them in a freezer, which that stuff is made. But that is not what we're drinking today. Mm. Fantastic. So we are drinking uh, Kiona or Kiona Ice Wine 2018. Uh, This is coming out of Red Mountain, Washington. So not Alaska, but uh, Canada is also well known for their ice wines as long as Eiswein in (laughs) Germany. Well, but they did end up in Seattle. Seattle's in Washington. We can tie it in that way. There you go. Um, So this is 100% Chenin Blanc. Um, Ice wine is kind of known for its purity. So this is a very sweet... Sweet wine. Dessert wine. Um, it's only about 9% alcohol mm. um, with 17.5% sugar by weight. Whew. It's, it's got a lot. or 175 grams per liter of residual sugar. So this particular vineyard is only four acres, uh, started by John Williams and Jim Holmes. Uh, they first planted in 1975 and made their first vintage in 1980. mm Uh, From Red Mountain. It's not a mountain and it's not red. (laughs) I mean, like all good venters, right? Just make it up. But a bone dry area, if you will, they get about six inches of rain a year. Wow. Um, So it's essentially an island that was caused or formed during the Ice Age flooding. But Washington, along with Alaska, gets very cold, bitterly cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And the vines go dormant, which is actually nice. It's like they're hibernating like bears, if you will, Mm -hmm. for the winter. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so let's touch on other sweet wines. Okay. So there's um, a couple different ways you can obtain a sweet wine. Most wines on the market are fermented to dryness. That's when the yeast are eating the sugars that are in the grape juice. Um, so you can also uh, get unfermented sugar in numerous ways. Uh, one way, if you think of port, if you're familiar with it, um, they just stop the fermentation. Mm. So they do this through a process called uh, fortification, which is adding a neutral spirit, which stops the yeast from eating the sugars. Um, so you can also add a sweet component. Um, you can add unfermented grape juice or what they call a rectified concentrated grape must. Mm. RCGM, if you want to sound fancy. I always want to sound fancy. But this is mostly high volume, uh, inexpensive wines. And so ice wine is the third way you can do this, which is concentrating the actual grape sugars. So one of the ways to do this is it's called noble rot, <laughs> which is a happy fungus <laughs> called uh, Botrytis scenaria. Um, most famously in Sauterne, obviously the French are famous for everything, right? Uh, also Tokai from Hungary and uh, BA and TBA Riesling out of Germany. So how does it get the name Noble Rot? Because there doesn't sound anything noble about rot. It's fun, right? So uh, <laughs> this happy little fungus uh, needs kind all of... All fungus are fungi. Fun guys. Um, <laughs> they need all the stars to align. Uh-huh. Um, so you need ripe grapes. And so they, they puncture the grape. Mm. So it kind of gets raisinated. So you're okay. like losing volume. So you're concentrating the juice. Okay. And then, so that's usually caused by fog. So you get a little moisture, get the fungus going, and then you need dry afternoon sun to dry it back out. Okay. Or otherwise you just have rotten grapes. If you've ever left your grapes in the back of the fridge a little too long. It's happened. We've it's, all been It's there. not going to be a fun process. So it sounds like uh, a place like Washington would be really great for this because they are notorious for their fog in the morning and then sunshine in the afternoon. So it sounds like they're kind of a... a, a ripe place, uh, a, a very good dirt and climate there to grow these types of grapes. You nailed it on the head. Exactly right. Um, so then the grapes are picked, like I said, at night, mm -hmm. which is a uh, labor and expensive labor at that. So I these wines tend to be a little more pricier. So then you press the wine, you press the grapes like you would making any wine, uh, but the ice remains in the press. So you get all that mm. concentrated sugar content, and then the resulting juice is nice and sweet. Well, let's try it because you've talked a lot about it. I can't wait to look at this. So we're swirling it around in our glass now, and let's talk about the legs of it. We learned in the last, we learned in a podcast about the legs of it and how it uh, walks down the glass. Honestly, I'm struggling to even get legs. It's so lush and thick that it's like, oh, there they go. So very, very, <laughs> very slow. It takes a while. And yes. once again, that's that's mostly the sugar causing uh, causing that to happen. But ice wine is known for being a pure fruit. You're not going to get any other uh, weird... I won't say weird, but different different smells going on in your glass. It's it should be pure. It fruit. does smell like grape juice to me, like luscious, very mm -hmm. ripe, like peach juice. Yes, peach puree. Uh huh. You're obviously you're the nose that knows. I'm the nose that doesn't. So <laughs> I am just smelling. 
It does smell like a, almost like a kid's juice box. Perfect. That's a great one. Mm. All right. Let's take a sip. Ooh. Yeah. Very sweet. Uh-huh. But it still has that nice acidity to like kind of cleanse your palate and freshen it up. Wonderful. This um, is definitely, uh, well, we would describe it as like a rich dessert. So it's not something you're going to drink a lot of, but it, I wouldn't just sip and, uh, sip on this and read a book for sure. No, this is, you want to have a couple of sips of this almost as a finisher for the evening. Is that fair? Very fair. And I will just quick little tidbit on food and wine pairing. Um, you always want your wine to be sweeter than what you're eating. Mm. Otherwise, the wine is going to taste flabby, boring, flat. You're not going to get as much out of your wine. Okay. And so with sweet dessert wines, you're going to want to drink them at a cooler temperature than an average white wine. Uh, immediately pull it out of your refrigerator. Or if you're awesome enough to live in Canada or Alaska or Elsewhere with snow on the ground, you can just stick that bottle outside and put it in the snow. But it's going to be a lot more refreshing and the sugar will hit you less if your dessert wine is a very chilled temperature, 33 to under 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Could you freeze these wines? You can actually freeze them. There's usually so much sugar in there that they will not freeze solid. You will not have any explosions in your freezer. So you could put it in the freezer and forget about it for mm, a month or so? I wouldn't recommend it, but we don't want to test science and explosions. (laughs) But it's all good. So you want your wine to be sweeter than what you're eating. Exactly. So with this, you would definitely need like a chocolate ganache cake or something. Well, you might have an effect. Uh, affliction to certain things, <laughs> but I would want some fruit in my dessert with this. Oh, I no. would, I that wouldn't necessarily highly overrated, <laughs> highly overrated fruit. And dessert. I wouldn't necessarily pair this with chocolate, but if you don't like sweet wine, I will just say, um, you can get a fruity higher alcohol wine. And so Syrah is probably my favorite mm. go-to grape. Okay. If you do want to eat chocolate and enjoy some wine well, along with it. Red wine and chocolate do seem to go hand in hand together. You want, yes, the darker fruits, higher alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like helps balance out the chocolate and sweetness in your food. Well, we've learned a lot about Alaska today. We've learned a lot about contentious relationships, and we have learned a lot about sweet wine. So thank you for our listeners. If you head over to readingbetweenthewines.blog, we'll have more information about the wine we're drinking today, as well as the book. And you can also learn what we will be drinking and reading next. So until then, keep your glasses half full and cheers. Cheers. Cheers.